Nima You can imagine a classroom on, and the subject is preaching, and we're practicing giving sermons. And uh, the young man is giving a sermon, and he's preaching from the Old Testament, and he's talking about Noah and the ark. And then he says, at a poignant moment, and what was the ark made of? And we're supposed to think, wood. And then he says, and what else is made of wood? I'm thinking, I don't know, a baseball bat? A, uh, drawers that I put my clothes in? Uh, the roof of a church building? The cross. The cross is made of wood. And now, wonderfully, the young man preaches Jesus to us. And uh, as the homiletics instructor, I come up afterward and give thanks to God. We pray. And uh, I thank the young man for preaching Jesus, for setting Jesus in front of all of us as a class and proclaiming him to us. He, he did so, you can imagine, with such heart. And, and we were encouraged and moved to worship our Lord Jesus in a fresh way. And I'll never begrudge any person who points me to Jesus. But then I say, but we're in class. And um, we want to think through a, a different way <laughs> of speaking of Jesus from the book of Genesis than by uh, imagining a, a connection of wood between the cross and the ark. And that is the concern for those of us who uh, are mindful of how humble God is toward us and he'll condescend to bless our preaching and teaching when we're speaking of him from his word. And yet when we're in class, he would teach us uh, how to do so in a different way. And that's our question. How do you preach Jesus from the scriptures, of course, but in this particular case, from Ecclesiastes? And how do you do that in a way that's Credible, legitimate, plausible from the passage that's in front of us. Particularly when the person in the Old Testament, for example, uh, is not aware of Jesus, the person, and how, would, how do we do that? And so that's our brief quest today. We remind ourselves of the uh, passage that was already read for us there on the road to Emmaus. Our Lord Jesus telling us that Moses spoke of him, that the prophets speak of him, that the Psalms speak of him, and he opened up all the scriptures pertaining to himself. We remind ourselves of John chapter 5, in which the complaint of our Lord Jesus for the Bible teachers of the day was this. They were scripture readers. And his complaint was, you think that you have eternal life in them. But they speak of me, Jesus said. And that was the problem with the Pharisees, the Bible scribes of the day. 
not their love of Scripture, but their seeing Scripture and not seeing Jesus. And Jesus said, that is the problem. And then you begin to think about what um, those who follow Jesus uh, tell us of him. Say in Acts chapter 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch has opened the book to Isaiah 53, and from there, Philip preaches Jesus to him. Or you might remember the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, all that he tells us about Jesus. In verse 15, the Son, that is S-O-N, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and before him. He is before all things. In him all things hold together. You cannot speak of creation without reference to Jesus. You cannot legitimately speak about any created thing without reference to Jesus. And you cannot speak about God, and this uh, for our earnest neighbors who we love, who are concerned about tolerance. I recognize what I'm saying right now sounds intolerant, but it is the idea here that Paul is saying you cannot speak about God without reference to Jesus. Jesus is the image, not a image. The, the image of the invisible God. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. There's nothing in life that we can speak of that does not bow to Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. It would be a strange thing, you see, to open the book to pray for the Spirit of God's illumination of the book, and then to say nothing of Jesus. When there is no reference point in all of creation that exists apart from Jesus. And when the book itself reveals him to us. But when we're in class, We want to learn to do so faithfully, 
so that we don't bend the scripture to something it isn't saying. A friend of mine has said it well this way um, to earnest and well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ who who have a, a family debate about this kind of subject. He'll say, some of us are always talking about the engagement when the wedding has already taken place. Which of us goes around always showing pictures of our engagement and not pictures of the wedding? If the wedding's taken place, whenever we share our stories, we dwell a little on the engagement. But now there's the wedding and all that's come after it. And so how do we approach the scripture in that way? Paul has given us a clue here in Colossians chapter 1. And for our moments this morning, we'll start with the book of Hebrews as a, just an, an overview for us of some categories that I'm assuming, most of which are not unique to me in substance, perhaps and unique in where I'm finding them in the book of Hebrews and how I'm naming them. But in Hebrews chapter 1, this sermon, the scholars tell us, this exhortation of Hebrews, we have the premier Christ-centered preaching text. If you want to know what is the best Christ-centered preaching text to read, um, I suggest to you it's, it's not Chapel or Keller or Eswine or um, whoever it might be. It's the book of Hebrews. Long ago, right, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. In days past, God. But now, God. And God's inheritance in the future. And what's the common thread? Jesus. God spoke to us through the prophets. That same God now speaks to us through Christ. That same God has given the future inheritance of all things to Jesus. We have one big story. Um, And that's our first category we're looking for in the scripture. Where are we in this big story in relationship to Jesus? Are we in a, a place in the scripture that's before his incarnation or after it? Before his resurrection or after it? The other question about that is this. Think about it. What are the first words of the Bible? In the beginning, God. Yep. In the beginning, God. Does anyone remember the last words of the Bible? What is it? You can look. Yeah. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Here's the question. How, do we, how did we get from in the beginning God to may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you? 
And answering that question is what a preacher and teacher does. We're in God's world. Opening a book, which is one story about the God who in the beginning created such that in the end, the grace of the Lord Jesus would be with us. Now, uh, forgetting this one big story is what causes so many problems for us. It's what, at least in where I'm from, whenever you hear the Bible quoted in public on the news or something like this, it's almost always a passage from Leviticus or someplace in the Old Testament, and it's almost always uh, a, a dark passage, a passage that seems to show an intolerant God, and, and uh, it's always as if there's no other story. It's always as if nothing preceded that verse, and there is no context for that verse, and nothing has come after it. And we too can be tempted to open the book and preach in this way, as if there isn't one story. If you were to uh, open and read the book, uh, The Three Musketeers, and, uh, and you just open to the middle of that novel, The Three Musketeers, and you began to read, you know, you'd be confused. You'd, you'd want to look back at the cover of the title, The Three Musketeers. And the reason you're confused is because there are four. And in order to understand what's going on with the four, you'd have to go back and read from the beginning. Well, the Bible's not a novel. It isn't fiction. It's the truth, the history of things. But it is one story. And so, uh, in days past, the future, this is our first question. How do I preach Jesus and teach Jesus from any place in the scripture, and in this case, Ecclesiastes, one thing I'm asking is where are we in the big story? And uh, this means that there are things preceding Ecclesiastes, many chapters of the story that have preceded it, all beginning with, in the beginning, God created. And so to read uh, Ecclesiastes, through what I call the garden lens to remember Eden. Whenever we talk about our sin, it's important to remember what we fell from. Why sin is sin and why it's so devastating? Because there was something glorious, something full of benediction, something that was good, something that was very good. And it is lost. It's important to recognize Ecclesiastes comes from that perspective. Man was created upright, but he has sought out many schemes. And so when, when the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, who I think is Solomon, when, when he says meaningless, meaningless, it's as if a soldier who went off to war left his home and remembers what his home was like. But while the soldier was away, his town was bombed. And now the soldier comes back and sees what has become of the place he loved. 
and he falls down on his knees and weeps. Or he cries out, what has become of this? Meaningless. And so the wise man, out of the fear of the Lord, knows what Eden was. He knows what under the sun was. He knows that that sun was created by God at the beginning of the story. And now he looks at once Eden and says, what has become of this? This is senseless. The garden lens, a remembrance of the good we were created for and that we long for. But Ecclesiastes also has a whole lot of story coming after it. It isn't the last word. And recognizing the role of our own Savior, Jesus, becomes important. The big story. Are there any uh, places or characters in the text I'm looking at that I have met before or will meet again? Are there any places or characters in the text I'm looking at that I have met before in this one story or that I will meet again? And so when you're in the book of Ruth and you realize that in Bethlehem, the house of bread, there's a famine, you have, met, you have been to this place before in the story and you will be there again. Reoccurring characters, reoccurring places. And this is why we always ask, has the New Testament said anything about the passage that I'm preaching? And has anywhere else in the Old Testament said anything about the passage that I'm preaching? We would call that the analogy of Scripture. But I'm just saying what we're talking about is the big story. This is our first category when we look at any text of Scripture, and in our case, Ecclesiastes. Second is the imprint of God, a picture of God, a reflection of God in Christ. Verse 3, the sun is the radiance, the S-O-N, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Verse 5. For which of the, of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God. <laughs> there is God calling the sun God. This is, this is why we try to, to, to speak of this mystery that Jesus has... Every attribute of God and is worshiped as God, even though He is the Son. 
Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Jesus said that himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip, I believe it was, was asking a question that a lot of our friends ask. A lot of our unbelieving friends, discouraged agnostic friends, show us God. Just show us the Father, that'll be enough. I mean, and Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen God, the Father. And so a question that you're asking, a second question you're asking in preaching Jesus from the text is, is there a reflection of the character of God in this passage that I'm working with demonstrated in the character of Jesus? The way God relates in this passage, the glory of God revealed in this passage, or the character of God on display in this passage similarly displayed or shown in the person and work of Jesus. The same character, the same way, because when we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. Third, now finally here we are. I say that with a smile. Verse 3, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And there he is, the sacrifice for our sin, the substitute for sinners, the deliverer, the one who purchases us. Is there sin in this passage that I'm preaching that is still sin today for which the God who is relating to the people in this passage in their sin, that same God ultimately will account for that sin through his Son? And he is also the sympathizer for our consolation. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Is there a kind of misery or temptation that those in this passage are experiencing, being sinned against? or experiencing the miserable nature of this world, that we see the same in our Savior Jesus, and we see his consolation and sympathy for such a condition. Continuity of the message. Therefore, chapter 2, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neg- neglect such a great salvation? It was declared by, uh, at first by the Lord, 
It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness. Is there something taught in this passage that Jesus teaches too? Something in this passage being taught that Jesus himself takes up and teaches. There's the big story. There is the imprint of the character of God. There is the sacrifice for our sins. There is the sympathy for our condition in Christ. And there is the teacher, the message that the same God who teaches it here teaches it there through his son. And then finally, the theme of this uh, preacher in Hebrews, Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater. He's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the Sabbath rest. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the sacrifices. He's greater than the high priests, the promises, the covenant, the hall of faith. Jesus is greater. As we've been learning already when we encounter a prophet, a priest, a king, a sage, an angel, a law, a promise. One greater comes to fulfill that promise or to fully fulfill that office or that title. Now when you look down uh, here and you think about the big story, the picture of God's character, the imprint of his character, sacrifice for sin, sympathizer for our condition, a continuity of message, and one who's greater. I'd like to suggest this. When I'm talking about communicating Jesus from the Scripture, I'm speaking, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not only talking about justification by faith alone. So for many of uh, dear brothers of mine with whom we'll be in the new kingdom together, to preach Jesus means, it's synonymous with preaching justification by faith alone. Preaching Jesus as the substitution for our sin, the atoning sacrifice for our sin, the Savior and Deliverer. And I'm saying yes. Why do we know that? It's right here in Hebrews chapter 1. We've already read it in Colossians chapter 1. We proclaim Jesus as the Savior of our sin. It's not less than that. It's just so much more. I invite you to consider it. Don't take my word for it. Look how the writer of Hebrews preaches Jesus. Look at all he says about Jesus. Go back. Read the book of Colossians. If we had time, we would just walk through. But you can do this. 
Read the book of Colossians. Look for everything Paul says about Jesus. And you will see that Jesus is the Savior for our sins, but so much more. He is the exact imprint of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only does he know whether Pluto is a planet or not, Pluto cannot exist except that Jesus wills it. He holds all things together, seen and unseen. You and I can't breathe apart from him. He is the inheritor of all things. Pluto belongs to him. And so do you. And so does the most hardened person that you know, who you long to know Jesus, and that person seems so hardened against him. That person, unbeknownst to them, belongs to him. That person will bow, as we know, one way or another. And so if we're not careful, we don't preach Christ as the justifier for our faith. And that is our earnest recovery and hope in the Scripture. But if we are not careful, we shrink the person and work of Christ to this one act. As if He isn't the one through whom God has spoken. As if we we have other teachers rather than one, He says. As if it's His voice, not the voice of the hireling or the thief or the stranger that we're supposed to hear. Not only has he saved us, he holds us together through whom we were created for him. So, uh, how do we know this? The book itself. Look at how the follow Jesus preaches himself and look at how his apostles preach and teach him. And then we will not only robustly preach Christ for the salvation of sinners, we will also preach Christ in all the fullness of his person and his work. So that when someone hears our regular teaching and preaching ministry of the word, if they were to be with us for six months, if they were to be with us for one year, what they would hear in the accumulation of our message is the fullness of the person and work of Jesus from his word. So, and what a glorious, glorious life that is. What, what, what greater privilege is it? Uh, if I, uh, I have to tell you, if some, sometimes in pastoral work, I, I just get discouraged and I, I don't, I get demotivated. If, if, if as it's spoken of in my country, if really what I'm doing is developing a not-for-profit organization, if I really am just the executive director of a 501c3 not-for-profit organization, which is how it goes in our... If, I, if you really are in your country just the leader of an organization trying to get the programs working so that people have access to various things like that, eventually I just want to quit. And so sometimes there I am on the couch, discouraged, thinking, what am I even doing? What life is this? What are we doing? 
And then my wife, Jessica, will begin to remind me that of Jesus, his wounds, his lovely, lovely character, his beauty, his strength, his humility, his company, his majesty, how he frightens me with his power and is at the same time the lifter of my head. And gradually my heart warms again by my faithful sister in Christ or a faithful friend like Ty telling me of Jesus again. And then I remember being the long-haired guy with jeans. The first time I went to a presbytery meeting an older man who became a very dear friend. But at that moment when he first saw me, he said, that's no Presbyterian. The long hair and the earring and the jeans coming out of a profoundly broken family. Each of my parents in their wrestling match for love. Going through three divorces and five marriages. Wondering who God was as a kid growing up, finding my way gradually long before I ever wrote a book, long before I ever studied anything, long before anybody knew my name. When I was just in a field in university crying out to God to show himself to me, feeling as I was leading worship in the Catholic church that I long, I long for God to like me and working so hard for him to like me and then a friend at the time calling me late at night saying, I think you should read the book of Hebrews. And at 19 years old, I read this book of Hebrews. I couldn't have possibly understood everything there because I don't, I don't understand everything there right now as a Gentile trying to continue to grow in what my knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures and what all this means. But I read that and I began to see for the first time the one who's greater. And that the blood of bulls and goats can't cleanse my conscience and that no priest can do it. And that no human being can do it other than the one God sent for me That's why I'm standing here right now. Why would I choose to do this? Why would you choose to be here? Out of every choice in your life that you could have, why? If it isn't because Jesus is lovely to you. You and I are no different than Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And so what greater privilege is there than to speak of the one who's lovely, the one through whom all things were created, to speak of Christ when we opened the book and in all of our life together.
One greater than Solomon has come. Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, Paul tells us. Christ, who became to us wisdom from God. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so here is where we were yesterday now. To take our last uh, bit of time here together. And, and look at a couple of examples of what it would mean to point to Jesus from his word in Ecclesiastes. So we were in Ecclesiastes 9 when we ended our last session. Verse 13, I have seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. In the notes, I've given you a basic outline of how I would approach this as a giving a, a sermon. But now we would take these categories and we would prayerfully ask God, is there anything here about the big story? Where are we? We are prior to Christ's incarnation. We are post-Eden. Is there anything here, a person or a place that we've met before and that we'll meet again? Yes. Yes, there is. Wise and foolish kings. A deliverer. It seems that in this story that we're in, deliverers are common to this God the story points us to. Doesn't it? Whether it's Esther or Ruth and Boaz, whether it's Gideon, Or David with his Goliath? Are there, is there an imprint, this display of God's character here that we see in the Lord Jesus? Maybe it's something like this. The same God who provides a deliverer for this city. That is the same God who post-Eden continues to provide deliverers and that is the same God who will ultimately provide a deliverer in his own son Jesus sin is spoken of here verse 18 wisdom is better than weapons of war but one sinner destroys much good the sin here is trusting folly thinking that being loud makes you great, thinking that having a lot makes you great, 
thinking that you can create um, large, famous things as fast as you can and put them upon someone else will make you great. The sin of it. God ultimately delivers us from that sin and being sinned against. So here they are, being sinned against by loud fools with power. Whether it's a loud, foolish pastor who thinks that greatness is amassed with fan bases and platforms and making a lot of noise and showing how much greater they are than those in smaller churches and smaller places. Or it's the king of a land or the president of a land who believes that power is found in folly. Jesus pays for such fools. And for those of us sinned against by such folly. He is the sympathizer with those sinned against in this passage. He too, poor, forgotten, wise, deliverer. He knows what it is to suffer fools. He knows what it is to stand before loud kings like Herod. Continuity of message. Does Jesus teach this? That uh, greatness is found in uh, humble wisdom rather than with uh, uh, loud shouting and power. Yes, of course. He teaches this regularly. For example, when James and John came wanting to sit on the right and the left hand of the Lord Jesus, and our Lord Jesus said, um, uh, he who would be great among you must be servant of all. You will not be like the Gentiles who lord it over others, right? He who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, Paul would say, but took on the very nature of a servant, humbling himself. And of course, in this big storyline of deliverers and wise and foolish kings. We know that uh, the nations have always had kings. We know that uh, Israel had God as king, but then wanted their own king like the other nations. And we know of the history of wise and foolish rulers that have been a part of this long story. And we know why it is we need the one who is born king, whom Herod seeks to snuff out because he feels the threat to his throne. We know of Pontius Pilate saying, are you a king then? And we know of the epitaph, here lies Jesus, king of the Jews. And so within this one story, we've seen kings and rulers, deliverers, wise and foolish 
and Jesus is greater. For every foolish king, we needed the wise king. And for every wise king who fell short, which is everyone, we needed the true one to come. Let's look at one other example, and then we'll close our time here. Imagine you're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, and it's just poetry. So if you're able to access the link of notes, we didn't talk about this out loud together, but there are thorough notes for you to be able to walk down through this very passage to learn how to recognize what kind of poetry this is and what you do with it. But here we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, which basically tells you, no one will remember you. You will live, you will die, and you will be forgotten. Yeah. That's just true, isn't it? Remembered by God, known by God, known in the company of the saints. But if I say uh, uh, Flip Wilson, if I say the Jetsons, if I say um, Ricky Bobby, if I say Bono, if I say Rihanna and her tree, if I say Joe DiMaggio, I'm just saying names from different generations. And there are those of us in the room, you would do this with folks that you know. Those of us in the room, you will say, as I did to my uh, kids recently, do you know who Billy Graham is? No. No. Realizing I, I have some teaching to do. Not just of the history of the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Not just the Reformation. Not just the early church history. But in, in the generation of my own life. Remembering that as an American, September 11th, there are kids born now. Who will read about it in the history books. They're in my church. They weren't there. They don't know it as a first-hand account. They'll read accounts in history and think it's boring. We come and we go. And, and so, we think of the big story of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Are there any characters and places that we meet here that we have met before or we will meet again? Yes. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem, boom, <laughs> all right? Son of David, ah, this is a character we will meet many times in this big story. And ultimately, Jesus himself will call himself this, won't he? Son of David. King of Jerusalem, we've already been speaking of kings, and we will meet in Jerusalem many times through this one story. And one that we will often overlook. 
Under the sun, verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? We can almost take that as a metaphor rather than remembering this is an actual sun. It's the same sun that you and I see when, when it shows itself. The same sun that you and I look at is the sun that God spoke into being when he created all things. It's the same sun that shone when Jesus was born. It's the same sun Mary and Joseph saw. It's the same sun that the woman at the well saw when she and Jesus sat by the well at noon. It's the same sun in the afternoon of the day when he said, I thirst. It is a physical sun. And it is the one that begins the story. And this under the sun point of view, as we've already mentioned, is looking at what was once Eden. What was once everything good. You and I, when we walk out here and we see this sun, we see the place God created that was once good. It was once good. It was once very good. It was once full of peace. At rest with God. At rest with each other. Can you imagine it? At rest with yourself. (laughs) It isn't Middle Earth. It isn't Narnia. We're helped by Middle Earth and Narnia to point us back to this physical world. You're living in the real myth, the true one. This is the sun that God created at the beginning of the story through the garden lens. Is there a picture of God here? Not plainly, not plainly. As Ecclesiastes is, God uh, is ever-present, but often in the background. He is the God that lets us live and die and be forgotten. He is the God who lets fallen Eden, the fallen world under the sun, be cursed with death. What sin would be here in Ecclesiastes 1 that we would need a Savior for? Perhaps it is trying to find gain in verse 3. Trying to find gain from all of our labor under the sun as if this is a closed system, as if this is all there is. Is there any sympathy, any comfort, any consolation for those of us who live, die, and are remembered no more by the world? Yes, because there as was, as we see, a poor, wise man who delivered the city and was 
remembered no more. And he is today, Jesus, forgotten. This is, this is the great uh, pain that we have in our neighborhoods, among our neighbors and friends and family members, that they don't see Jesus as he is. They slander him, ridicule him, mock him, indifferent to him, apathetic to him. He's forgotten to them. What relevance does he have? He lived so long ago. What does that matter to me? He knows what it is to be forgotten, to die. And so he says, come to me. And everything is weary, verse 8. Everything is worn out. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Everything is worn out, and we are unsatisfied. The eye never has enough of seeing. The ear, it's full of hearing in verse 8. And so we see the continuity of the teaching. Do not work for treasure. It does not last where moth and rust destroy. Work for treasure, work for bread. That satisfies that no one can take from you. The question itself, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Jesus himself, what does a man gain if he get the whole world and forfeit his soul? And Jesus is greater. Here, the text in the poetry tells us the sun rises, the sun sets, it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, to the north, round and round it goes. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. And you get the idea of creation outlasting us. And it's true, it's amazing history here to imagine the folks who walked across these fields. Uh, to, be, to be at the, the abbey there in Bangor where, where we were hearing about St. Patrick's vision and the three who came after him and how the gospel went from there throughout the um, places of destruction in the Roman world, preserving Jesus. Whatever you make of all that, people have been here before. And they walked across the same land under the same sun, feeling the same kinds of wind that whips through here and the same areas of flooding and But we've already read that Jesus is greater than this sun. Greater than the wind. The wind was created through him. The earth created through him. For him. So even though the earth seems to outlast us, it is no match. For the one who upholds it by the word of his power. And that's the one we look to. And so, we've just begun thinking together about these categories that the New Testament writers themselves seem to use when they think of Christ. And we've begun to look at passages in Ecclesiastes giving hints of how we might think about that. Let's pray together. 
Lord, thank you for your word. We give you thanks. In your name, amen. Nima.